Nothing matters very much. Few things matter at all. So said Arthur Balfour, who was Prime Minister of England at the start of the 20th century. It's a very bleak view of life and the world, and it might be strange to find such a perspective in such a powerful and important person. If this is true, if Alpha Balfour really believed this, why go to all the trouble of becoming Prime Minister, head of the British Empire, at that time the most powerful nation on earth? Well, Balfour became Prime Minister when his uncle Robert, the Lord Salisbury, was the former Prime Minister, resigned, and he handpicked his successor. And apparently this is where we get the expression, Bob's your uncle. Because for our new Australians, Bob, your uncle, is something we say when we know something is sure to work out well. Do this and that, and Bob's your uncle. Well, his uncle Bob was the Prime Minister before him. He resigned. Arthur Balfour became Prime Minister. Bob's your uncle. And he said, nothing matters very much and few things matter at all. It is a sentiment that comes up again and again in our culture. One of the best-known rock ballads ends with the words, nothing really matters, nothing really matters to me. And for an Australian perspective, we have our most infamous bush ranger, Ned Kelly, who having murdered his way across Victoria, which I can understand having visited Victoria myself, but having murdered all those people, no, that was terrible, I apologise to any Victorians listening. He murdered a bunch of people, and when he was facing the hangman's noose, he uttered those simple words, Well, such is life. Eh, easy come, easy go. And this sentiment is expressed in millennial text speak. The letters YOLO were in common use not long ago. I have no idea what young people are texting to one another these days. I'm terrified of looking at my teenagers' phones. But YOLO stands for you only live once. So you may as well go out and have a good time. A generation, the generation before mine, the expression was, live fast, die young, and leave a good-looking corpse. Who has used that expression? No one here is willing to put their hand up. All right. These are all common expressions of a philosophy of nihilism, the idea that nothing matters, knowledge is impossible, life is without value, meaning, or purpose. And believe it or not, this idea has an entire book in the Bible, an ancient set of writing that lays out these same arguments and ideas, which of course just reminds us that there is nothing new under the sun. The book is called Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes is commonly believed to have been written by King Solomon, who lived about 3,000 years ago. Solomon calls himself the preacher or the teacher in this book. The Hebrew word he uses to describe himself is this one, Koheleth, which is also the Hebrew name for the book. So in Hebrew, Ecclesiastes is called Koheleth. And a Koheleth is someone who calls together an assembly and addresses it, a teacher or a preacher. Or the NIV translates it as the leader of the assembly, someone who gathers a crowd and then speaks to them, the Koheleth. Well, the Greek version of the word quoheleth is ecclesiastes. Some Ks. Why we took the Ks out when we translated to English, I don't know. But in English, ecclesiastes, we just take the Greek word for it. 
An ecclesia is the Greek word for an assembly. And then the New Testament becomes the word for the congregation or the local church. So we here this morning are an ecclesia, an assembly of people gathered together with a preacher or a teacher speaking to you. We're taking a short break from our series in 1 Corinthians to look at some of the wisdom literature. We spoke about the Psalms earlier in the year. And this June, we're looking at Proverbs last week, Ecclesiastes this week, and next week at the book of Job. And I've just got there on the screen uh, the books of the Bible divided by their different genres of lore and history, of poetry and wisdom, of prophecy, the Gospels, the letters, the Apocalypse. For these few weeks, we're looking at those wisdom books. With the book of Ecclesiastes, it's good to sit and read the whole thing through. Because if you open your Bible at random to Ecclesiastes looking for advice, there's a better than 50% chance that you'll end up killing yourself. Don't just take something at random out of Ecclesiastes and go, well, that's what I should go and do. It's good to read the whole book through in one setting. Think of it as a great philosopher or a preacher giving an address to an audience. And Ecclesiastes isn't that long, but it would take more than an hour or so to read. In one sense, it's an easy book to grasp because its themes are clearly laid out. The key verse, the theme which is repeated through it, is found in the second verse. Vanity of vanities. Let's read it together. Vanities of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. That's the older English version. The modern translations put it like this. Let's say it together. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. And he goes on. What do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south and turns to the north. Round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. All streams flow into the sea but the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from, there they return again. All things are wearisome, more than one can say. The eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear it's full of hearing. What has been will be again. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one can say, look, this is something new. It was here already long ago. It was here before our time. No one remembers the former generations, and even those yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow them. And no, I'm not going to read the whole book this morning, but from just these opening verses, you get the idea of the whole book. Life is pointless. Everything's futile. Why do we even bother? It's a very strange book, or perhaps it's the most normal book in all of the Bible. I've heard of it being used as an evangelistic tool on university campuses where copies of Ecclesiastes are printed out in a little book called a Book of Ancient Wisdom and then handed out to students. And if a student reads it and gets curious and asks questions, it's an opening then to have a conversation about what the Bible says, what it means. It's a way of saying to someone, hey, did this spark your interest? Let's talk about what the rest of the Bible says. I'm not sure how successful it's been as an evangelistic tool, but at this point we should try anything and everything. 
The preacher in Ecclesiastes sets himself a task in the book to study and explore by wisdom all that's done under the heavens or under the sun. He says, I've seen all the things that are done under the sun. All of them are meaningless, are chasing after the wind. There's nothing quite so pointless as chasing after the wind. And through the rest of the book, we can see the areas he explores by the section titles. If you've got your Bibles there, you might like to open to Ecclesiastes. It's sort of bang in the middle uh, if you get to Isaiah, you've gone too far. But the meaning, the titles of the various chapters. So, for instance, what it says, wisdom is meaningless. And he says, for with much wisdom comes much sorrow. The more knowledge, the more grief. Some of the cleverest people around are the most miserable. And then he says, pleasure is meaningless. He says, I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. Everything was meaningless. A chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. King Solomon was a man who knew how to have a good time. Yes, he had more wives than you could poke a stick at. And at the end he says... Everything's meaningless. He even says that folly is meaningless, that going out and being silly is stupid. Because he says, for the, like, for the wise, like the fool, will not be long remembered. The days have already come when both have been forgotten. Like the fool, the, two, the wise too must die. He says that hard work is meaningless. He says, all their days, their work is grief and pain. Even at their night, their minds do not rest. This too is meaningless. There are people out there who are addicted. They're workaholics. They work and work and work and work. And even in the middle of the night, they wake up planning what they're going to do the next day. And Solomon says, that's meaningless. It comes to nothing. He says, oppression happens in the world and it's meaningless. Saw the tears of the oppressed. They have no comforter. Power's on the side of their oppressors. They have no comforter. He says, riches are meaningless. Whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. This too is meaningless. Scrooge McDuck was not happy. Although he's a cartoon duck, he teaches us a lesson. He says there's a common destiny for all. He says the same destiny overtakes all. The hearts of all people, moreover, are full of evil, and there is madness in their hearts while they live, and afterwards they join the dead. It is a confronting book. I've tried it all, the teacher says, and in the end it is all meaningless, since everyone and everything dies. One of my favorite philosophers, uh, Talia, summarized the book this way. He says, this is what Ecclesiastes says. We're born, we live, we die. Sometimes there's cake, but always there is death. And this is the point of much of modern thinking. From Ned Kelly to Bohemian Rhapsody to Prime Minister Balfour to the YOLOing millennials. Meaningless, meaningless. Everything is meaningless. You know, scientists believe that eventually all the stars in our universe will burn out. There'll be no light. No heat, no nothing. It's a silent and dead infinity. Here endeth the lesson, go in peace. But of course, no. 
Except, of course, that's not the end of the lesson because we've skipped whole chunks of Ecclesiastes. Because as easy it is as it is to sum up all of Solomon's thinking in this book into five depressing minutes, what makes this book difficult is that Solomon cannot stick to his thesis. He cannot keep his argument because he keeps bringing up and mentioning God. Sometimes Solomon, the preacher, argues if God doesn't exist. And at other times he can't help but bring God back into the story. And so in verse chapter 2, he says, To the person who pleases him, God gives wisdom, knowledge, and happiness. And in chapter 3, he says, I know that everything God does will endure forever. Nothing can be added to it, nothing taken from it. God does it so that people will fear him. He goes on and says, Whatever is has already been, and what will be has been before. God will call the past to account. In chapter 5, he says, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Don't need to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools. Do not know that they do wrong. What is the sacrifice of fools? He says, do not be quick with your mouth. Do not be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God. God is in heaven and you are on earth. So let your words be few. And then chapter 7, he says, Consider what God has done. Who can straighten what he has made crooked? When times are good, be happy. But when times are bad, consider this. God has made the one as well as the other. The preacher has argued that everything under the sun or under the heavens is meaningless. Meaningless, meaningless. And he's right. If all we see If all we see is from the earthly, physical, temporal perspective, then yes, everything is meaningless and pointless and utterly futile. Other parts of the Bible agree. For instance, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, I can't leave 1 Corinthians alone. In 1 Corinthians he says, If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. Paul says, if there's nothing beyond this life, then Christianity is the stupidest of ideas. But if there is something beyond this life, this world, this universe that will burn out and grow dark and dull, when we look from God's perspective, when we bring him into the picture, when we expand our view, suddenly everything looks very different. We read with the children this morning in chapter 3, verse 11, that God has set eternity in the hearts of people. We are not mere animals, Ecclesiastes says, because humans have an idea of an eternity. We have an obsession over what comes next, what happens after death. God has set eternity in the human heart, part of our nature, part of our design. I heard a story this week of a preacher, I think he was on a plane, or no, he'd gone to the pub to watch a football game. He's an Englishman, he's in America, he's gone to the pub to watch a football game, he's the only one there to watch the football game apart from one other fellow. He gets chatting to the fellow and they're both supporting their team, Manchester, one of the Manchesters. Anyway, I don't care about that. One of them won something this week. It's very exciting for them. Anyway, this pastor is talking to this other chap and at halftime the other chap says to him, what do you do? He says, I'm a pastor. I'm here for a conference. 
And the other chap goes, oh, okay. Just let you know that I'm an ardent atheist. I'm an evangelical atheist. I try to do my, my, it's my job to convert people to become atheists. He says, great, let's have, a fight. let's have a conversation. The two of them have a great chat. The football comes back on. They watch it again. They watch the second half. They sit. They have a drink together. They have a chat. They get, become good friends. At the end of the night, the atheist says, you haven't convinced me there's a God. But I'll tell you the truth. I'm terrified of dying. I'm terrified of what comes next. There is a dread. There is a doom that hangs over me as to what happens next. Because God has set eternity in the hearts of men. And the most ardent atheist cannot help but be terrified of what happens next because they know deep in their soul that there is something that happens next. God has set eternity in the hearts of men. It's part of our design to look beyond this world. And Ecclesiastes finishes his book with these words. He says, now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the duty of all mankind. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. At the end of all his philosophizing, his experimenting, his experiencing, his YOLOing, the preacher comes to the conclusion that actually we don't just live once. God will raise up the dead and judge every deed, including every hidden thing. We are not independent agents. We are are accountable. We will all stand before the one who made us. Jesus put it like this. Matthew chapter 16, Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange For their soul. For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what they have done. Jesus says here that he is the one who is coming to judge. He is the one who is coming to reward everyone according to what they have done. And he says, What good will it be to have gained the whole world? Yet forfeit your soul, your life. Are there any questions this morning before I conclude? For those visiting with us, I'd like to stop and see if there are questions about anything I've said that confuses, upsets, or you would like to know more about, or something I said that didn't make any sense. I don't see any hands this morning. If you would like to ask me a question or talk to me about these things, Email address is there. My phone number is there. I'd love to have these conversations with you. My job is to talk to you. That's part of my job. If you'd like to talk about these things, I'd love to have those conversations. Ecclesiastes finishes with this idea. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the duty of all mankind. 
Fear can be a tricky word. There are irrational fears. There are phobias. People who are afraid of balloons or spiders or bald men or whatever it is you're scared of. Phobias, irrational. But there are legitimate fears. I have a good fear of electricity. I've seen what it can do. I don't want to touch it. I don't want to go near it. I have a good fear of electricity. I have legitimate fears of storms blowing off roofs and knocking things down. She's fine, mate. She's fine. Just leave it. She's fine. Uh, Fear of storms. When the storms come, we go inside and we shut the door. We say to our kids, we're warm and safe in the house. Nothing's going to hurt you while you're in here. We fear raging waters. We fear floodwaters. Not enough in this country. We need to learn more and more to fear floodwaters. Don't go into floodwaters. You're not Moses. You're not going to be able to get through just because you think you can. Just stay out of it. If it's flooded, forget it. Very good. We fear these things. We fear unknown dogs. And even known dogs. I'm always very careful just to leave the baby in the backyard with our beautiful old Labrador. I still keep an eye on her because you never can tell with dogs. There are things that we have legitimate fears about. Here in Ecclesiastes, the point of fear God is to say that life is not meaningless. It's not pointless. It's not chasing the wind because life is more than what happens under the suns or under the heavens. There is a God and he is very interested in you and what you do. So show some respect. Show some fear. Be a healthy fear for God. For Christians, we believe the fullness of God is expressed in the person of Jesus Christ, and we have some partial pictures of God in nature and in the Old Testament, but in Jesus Christ, we have the perfect picture of what God looks like. So the writer of the Hebrews puts it like this, the sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. We believe that when we see Jesus, we see God as he really is. Paul in Colossians 1.15 says, The Son is the image of the invisible God. So we ought to keep the commandments of Jesus. And this way we show we respect God. What are the commandments of Jesus? In John 15, Jesus says this, My command is this, Love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friend. This is my command. My command. Love each other. Now, love does get a mention in Ecclesiastes. He talks about loving your wife, which I'm pro. I'm all for that. He talks about if you love money, what happens to you. But at no point in Ecclesiastes does the teacher say, you should love your neighbor and sacrifice yourself for them. Because if he'd done that, he wouldn't have been able to say that that was meaningless. Of all his experiences, Solomon never put himself out for anybody. He never served anyone. He never gave himself up for anyone. Ecclesiastes tells us to fear God and keep his commands. This is the duty of all mankind. Jesus tells us that his command is that we should love one another as he has loved us. 
I want to encourage you this morning not to get trapped in under the sun thinking of meaninglessness or vanity. It's easy to go along with those things. It's easy to go along with nothing really matters, nothing really matters to me because that's the way our world works. But it's not true. It's nonsense. It's a lie. Don't get trapped in the thinking of meaninglessness and vanity. Repent of those ideas. Think about Jesus and who he is and what he has done. Repent in your mind and heart. Live his way of love, of life, of purpose. Time has come, Jesus said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. The song I've chosen to reflect this morning says, Be still for the presence of the Lord. The Holy One is here. Come bow before him now with reverence and fear. In him no sin is found. We stand on holy ground. Be still for the presence of the Lord. The Holy One is here. And as we sing this morning, invite the Lord to come and speak to your heart. To remind you of the true meaning of life. To reject the vanity of our world. To live in a way that pleases him. Father God, this morning we thank you for those ancient words of Solomon that speak to us today and are so relevant to us today. Father God, I pray that we would see in them the true absurdity of the earthly way of thinking, the true absurdity of thinking of things under the sun or under the heavens. Father God, help us to see things from your eternal perspective. Father God, there are people here this morning, and myself included, who take on the philosophy of the world, who get depressed by the troubles of the world, who think that everything is foolish and stupid and absurd and futile. Father God, I pray that you would speak to us by your Holy Spirit, that you would give us a fresh glimpse of eternity, that we would see things from your point of view. Help us to find meaning in this world. Help us to share that meaning with others and help us to find meaning and purpose in the words of Jesus when he tells us to love each other, to give our lives up for our brothers and sisters. Father God, fill us with your Holy Spirit. Make us like Jesus. Help us to fear you and keep your commands. Jesus' precious and powerful name we pray. Amen. Amen.